And welcome back to another episode of Coaching with the Bible. This week, the second in our series of Passover-related sessions. This is episode 132, episode uh, season three, episode 23. The portion of the week is the opening portion of the third book of the five books of uh, Moses, the book known as Vayikra, Leviticus, as I mentioned before, my favorite of the five. I know, surprising choice, but my favorite of the five. Our subject of the week, topic of the week is answers. If last week we talked about questions, then this week we have to talk about answers. I hope you had a great week. I think I had a pretty good week, but I hope you had a great week as well. Let's dive right in. So last week, we dealt with the issue of asking great questions. Thinking about great questions, the role and the importance of great questions, the value of asking great questions. The truth be told is that in asking great questions, we're only sort of getting halfway there because we're seeking something. In asking a good question, we are seeking a solution. We are seeking an answer. It is the rare occasion when we're asking a question simply to ask and not have an answer. That does happen. Someone can ask a question simply to end a conversation. I've seen that happen before. And so it sort of shuts down what's going on. For the most part, a person who is asking a question whatever depth the question takes, is seeking an answer. And so this week, in sort of part two of that conversation, is a conversation around answers. Let's start then with the holiday itself. As I mentioned last week, that the sort of igniter for the Passover Seder is the questions that are being asked, the questions of the children, the question of the child, the youngest child is asking the famous four questions. But that the night is full of all kinds of questions. We talked sort of at the end about the idea of an exercise of picking one scenario or one moment in the Exodus story and going deep on the questions, leaving the answers out. I know that's hard to do. I remember years ago when I was teaching high school, I was teaching Talmud, so very often when you're in Talmudic discussions, there are a lot of questions, and sometimes you'll end the conversation without an answer. And I remember a, 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 a particular student who simply could not sit in the ambiguity of not having an answer. It drove her crazy. She hated if we ended a lesson or a class, we didn't get to an answer. It just drove her nuts. I tried to explain to her that sort of living in the ambiguity, living in the space between the question and the answer is sometimes worthwhile and sometimes good, and it didn't sit well with her. She needed answers. And I think like most of us, to life's great questions, we seek and we want answers. And so the Bible then also then tells us not only what the questions might be, but what the answers then should be as well. When the child comes and asks you, what is this service? What are we doing? Why are we here? The Bible then provides answers. 
In fact, at the Seder itself, the Bible, the, the Seder story, the Seder text provides multiple answers, multiple versions of answers. The Talmud itself has a disagreement about what answer should we provide the child who asks the question. Should we simply tell them about the fact that we were slaves in Egypt? Or should we go back a little bit further and start with the history beginning with Abraham? Should we choose one or the other? Or should we choose both? And in fact, that we know that the Haggadah, the Seder text, actually chooses both. But throughout the night, there are different layers of answers that are being provided to the person seeking the answer. Remember years ago when I was in graduate school, so I studied in graduate school for Jewish education, and there was one class on developing lesson plans around prayer, I think specifically was the subject. How to teach prayer. And the, the section of prayer, actually, that I was given, I didn't ask for it, I was given, actually related not to actual prayer, but actually related to the liturgy and the text for the night of the Seder. And a specific section was dealing with the four questions. And so I did an analysis of the four questions. And then obviously, relatedly, did an analysis of the answers to the questions. And so it was important, as we said, to ask questions is also to get the answers. But also appreciate there are questions that have no answer. Or there are answers that we're not yet ready for. Or answers that we won't understand. I mentioned last week that Moses asks perhaps the most difficult question. Why do bad things happen to good people, right? That's the idea that comes up. The Talmud explains that when Moses is on Sinai, he asks God that question. There's no answer that Moses could actually, it would seem, understand, comprehend. That depth of understanding how the world works and the universe works is perhaps beyond us. That shouldn't deter us from asking the questions, but it should appreciate the idea that there are answers that, again, we won't understand, that we wouldn't appreciate, we simply can't take. But then for us itself is the idea of how do we go about answering questions? And then perhaps beyond that, maybe better, is how do we go about being good at answering questions? as opposed to being good at not answering questions. I think you could imagine a politician or two who's really, really good and skilled at not answering questions. Take every politician in every debate. Ironically, the best politicians and the best debaters often are the ones who don't answer the question being asked. They answer the question they want to be asked. Or they do, as the political, uh, the political people talk about the idea of what's called the pivot, they pivot from the question that's asked. They might even thank you for the question that's asked and then answer what they want to answer. Some are really skilled at it. Um, Bill Clinton comes to mind as an example. Someone really skilled as a debater, as a person in Q&A who would really never answer the questions. One writer actually wrote the idea that at some point after 
a very long, detailed, and pointed answer not to the question. The questioner, the journalist, doesn't even remember what the question was and doesn't even appreciate yet at the moment that they didn't actually get an answer. I remember uniquely and specifically John Kerry as a debater in the manner in which he didn't answer questions, but he was so smooth in those conversations that it felt like he answered the question, even though he didn't. So there's a sort of a confidence in not answering the question. So we don't want to focus in on not answering questions. We want to focus in on how do we go about answering questions? And this, I think you can bring back to the holiday if you'd like, in terms of if you're stoking the conversation like we talked about last week, and you're, you're, you know, sort of motivating people to ask a lot of questions, be ready to try to come up with answers or be in the space of being ready to answer those questions. And so the first thing that really comes to mind with respect to answering questions is really understanding the question. What exactly is the person asking? What kind of question is it? What's the sort of the kernel at the center of the question that they're asking? Then check for understanding. Even answer the question first with another question, but it's a question of clarification. We've talked about this a lot in communication uh, as a leader, but also here, I want to make sure that when we're actually going to answer, that we're actually answering the question that's asked. Not the question that's not asked, not a different question, not the questions you want to answer, the question that's being asked. So first, understand the question. But as it relates to that, it's really, 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 really important that we listen to the entirety of the question. You know, in certain situations, I think in Jeopardy, if you don't wait for the full, in this case, flip it, the full answer to be revealed, you can't provide the question. It means you can't, you can't answer the game if you jump in too early. Allow the person to complete the question. And then at that point, after having listened carefully and understanding the full weight and the full approach to the question, can you perhaps begin to formulate an answer. Part three then is to actually formulate an answer. Think it all the way through. You don't have to go into sort of the thinker pose and disappear for 20 minutes into your mind, but minimally give the question the respect it deserves and the person, the questioner, the respect that they deserve by taking a moment to consider your answer. That pause in coming about to the answer, that space of the silence, shows that you're taking the question seriously, that you are respectful of the person who's asking the question, and that person appreciates it. And for a moment, pause and appreciate the courage it took for that person to ask the question. 
For the years when I taught, I don't think I appreciated the idea that when a student asked a thoughtful question, that was a level of courage in that. There's a level of trust in there. There's a level of belief too. The level of courage is that I have this need to have something answered and I'm not ashamed to say I don't know the answer, but I trust that you, teacher, are a knowledgeable person, a thoughtful person, someone who cares deeply about my experience, my growth, my scholarship. So I'm going to ask you the question. And if they're asking that question in front of a lot of other people, that certainly is an open vulnerability that they're putting out there on the line to ask that question. So to sort of quickly and in a manner that is devoid of respect and dignity to lash out, give a a poor answer, make a joke, dismiss it, sort of destroys, A, the idea that that child's going to ever ask a question again or that person. And it just, it, it belies the trust that was there to begin with. So it's important that as we sort of, as we work on our ability to answer questions, is that we do take a moment and we pause and we think carefully about what it is that we're going to say. To give it a specific title, which I saw, which I really liked in terms of a strategy, it's called the Smile, Breathe, Think, Talk strategy. Smile, Breathe, Think, Talk. I saw an article that came from a teacher's uh, guide, um, website called Faculty Focus, article titled Five Strategies for Mastering the Art of Answering Questions When Teaching and Presenting. Right on target. Smile, breathe, think, talk. Makes sense, right? If you're standing in front of a classroom, you're standing in a uh, debate, you're standing in front of your team, you're standing in front of your children or your spouse at home or friends in a conversation. Person asks you a question. How do you respond? Not just what do you say, but how do you say it? The body language, the mannerisms, the tone of the answer also comes into play when we're answering questions. Imagine being at a dinner table with your family Someone at the table asks you a question and you give them the right answer, but you yell it at them, doesn't land. You mumble it, doesn't make its mark. You say it in a foreign language that they don't understand, so you even said the answer. But you didn't give it to them in a way that's delivered in a manner that the person can actually appreciate. Body language mannerism, tone, are important in answers. They're less important in questions, but they do come to make up, they do play a role in questions, but they play more of a role in the manner in which we answer. Because sometimes those things get in the way of our answers. I can't hear you through all the mannerisms. So we have to sort of approach it in that way. So, right, smile, think, Smile, breathe, think, talk. Smile, breathe, think, talk. I think it's a really good approach as a technique, as a strategy, as a way, as a way to go about it. 
Now, in our preparation for these kinds of conversations, or any conversation, we do need to become a student of questions. As I mentioned earlier, when the person is asking the question, we do have to clarify in our own mind, that's why we want to ask clarifying questions, what kind of question is the person asking? Is this a what question? Is it a why question? So if it's a what question, they're speaking, seeking detail. Is it a why question? So they're looking for the reasons behind, maybe some underlying theory, philosophy. Is it a who question? You get the idea as to how that goes. And then our ability to answer in response is based on how we make sure that we understand the question. So in the, the Seder event itself, as an example, there's a very famous section on the four sons, the four children, each one representing a different kind of child, each then asking a different kind of question, each then requiring a different kind of answer. And even if it's the same words in the answer, perhaps it's a sense of emphasis and tone in giving that answer. Perhaps it's a mannerism around giving that answer. You want to deliver or have to give a harsh answer to somebody? How do you do that? Stand and yell it at them, sit next to them, arm on their, hand on their shoulder, some ingratiating words first perhaps, right? There's always a way to do this in a proper manner. But it goes to the idea that questions are important and equally as important are the answers. Many years ago when I was in high school, there was a situation where I desperately needed an answer. I was sitting in 12th grade class and I didn't know what the word denomination meant. I had said it out loud because I saw it in the textbook and it was the answer to the teacher's question which she then teacher asked me to follow up and explain what does the word denomination mean? Now, ironically, in retrospect, it's funny because I spent a lot of my career working in the Jewish communal space among the different denominations in the Jewish community. And when I worked across faiths and working with Christian community a little bit here and there, having to appreciate the different denominations. But at the time, as a 17-year-old, I had no idea what the word meant. Zero. And I sat there stewing in not having an answer. And that happens. And all I needed was some sort of a lifeline, but there was nothing. There was no one. There was no escape from that sort of light being shined on me for those felt like a million years, but it was probably just a few minutes. It was torture. But the truth is, had the teacher allowed it, I would have simply just said, I don't know. Because I don't know is actually an answer. It's really important that we can appreciate that we don't always have to have the answers, although we should come back with an answer. But I don't know is an answer. And said properly, after a sense of thought about the question being asked, with a response, you know what, I don't know. Let me get back to you with an answer on that. Let me check into it. Let me speak to someone about that. I don't know is an answer as well. And so we have to appreciate, as I said earlier, not just the questions, but also the answers. And also appreciate, stylistically speaking, that we have to answer. It's okay sometimes to not have an answer. It's okay to say, I don't know. 
it's really not okay to ignore the person. That's sort of rude. Um, but to not have an answer is okay. And so we have to think about all these different things as it comes about the situation of answering questions. We can share the wealth and allow other people to answer at some form of, in many cases, deflecting, or perhaps worse, like the politicians, dodging. But if we're deflecting, that's okay. Or if we're spreading it around, we want other people to participate in the conversation, giving them the chance to answer. That's great. Let's get multiple answers from multiple sources, from multiple people, and then we create conversation because that's how you get good conversation. But as I said at the beginning, as a skill set, it's a massively important skill set to have, the ability to answer questions. And appreciate as we come to a close of Coaching with the Bible for this week as well, that as we're working our way through Passover and the themes here, we're not even talking about the specific themes of redemption, of, of, the, of freedom, of bondage, of slavery. We're simply talking here in methodology. We're talking here in conversations that are going around, going on around the holiday, but there are also skills that we can bring to the different environments. Seeking, asking good questions, asking great questions, seeking and having the courage to seek great answers to those questions, which ultimately, of course, leads to more questions. And as we end, as always, with a quote, don't seek an answer if you don't have the courage to know and strength to accept it. Be prepared first. When we're going into the situation, we're seeking out the answers, seek the answers. But it's important to have the courage to have the to go for the answer, to accept the answer, to not even like the answer sometimes, and to then come out of it perhaps with perhaps, as always is the case, with more questions. Because as you know, and I'll actually give you one bonus quote from J.D. Straub, life is filled with unanswered questions, but it's the courage to seek those answers that continues to give meaning to life. That is Coaching with the Bible for this week. Look forward to seeing you next week.